let's, uh, why don't we go ahead and pray together. Thanks for being here tonight. Our Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that your spirit would lead, guide, and overrule in this time. We pray that you would help us to learn uh, what it is that you are presenting to us in this book. We thank you for it. We thank you that you have uh, not left us to, to guess on our own what it is you want from us, um, but that you clearly lay it out. So, Father, help us to understand it, to believe it, and to seek your grace to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So thanks again for being here with us. Um, as we begin, uh, I want us to uh, take some time to just kind of remind ourselves of what we have uh, learned from this letter in Philippians so far. So um, uh, maybe you can tell me who remembers, uh, what's the deal with the author? Who's the author and what's going on with him? Think basic. He's in jail. Yes? Paul, in jail, right? What's he in jail for? Preaching the gospel, right? It's very simple. We, we, we understand that. Uh, he's in Rome, likely in Rome. He is uh, suffering uh, and facing opposition because of the gospel ministry. But in spite of that, um, he is not diverted from his call to gospel work. He is joyful, in fact, that the gospel is advancing in spite of the difficulties. He is single-eyed. He has a laser focus on Jesus and what God wants to do through the ministry of the gospel. Uh, tell me a little bit about the church. What do we know about the church in Philippi? It's a good one, okay? Yes, sir? Okay, right. Good. Anybody have like a genuine answer? <laughs> What's that? Paul loves them. Yep, he's very thankful for them. Right? First one planted in Europe. Thank you very much. That comes from one of the other teachers. I appreciate that. Um, right? First church in Europe planted by Paul in the midst of persecution. Um, Paul and Silas, one of his gospel companions, uh, sees conversions happening in that city. Remember, who, who was the first one to be converted? Anybody remember? Lydia, right? right? And the church is established there. Paul loves the church, as we heard last, last week. He has them in his heart. Um, and he is, has a great fatherly concern for their spiritual well-being and progress. But they are having some difficulties. Um, the church is dealing with some sort of opposition from enemies of the gospel. We see that in chapter 1, verse 29. Uh, they are also experiencing some false teaching that has come into the church, chapter 3, verses 2 and following. Not only that, there's also some strife, there's some disunity within their fellowship. That's why there is this call to unity in chapter 2. And then later we read about uh, Euodia and Syntyche in uh, chapter 4. Paul was concerned about how they are responding to all these trials. So he writes this letter to give them an exalted view of Jesus and what he's done in the gospel so that it would empower them to live lives worthy of the gospel and to joyfully stand firm uh, in their trials, to be humble, 
to be united and service-minded toward one another. All this is meant to be a reflection of God's grace to them in the gospel, what they have come to believe and how that is producing fruit in their lives. Now, um, one author uh, I read, Ken Hughes, gives a helpful and very succinct outline of the context just before our passage. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, by the way, verses 19 and following. So it is short, succinct um, outline. Chapter 1, verses 27 and following, Paul speaks of living lives worthy of the gospel among non-Christians. Okay, that's those who are opposing that. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he exhorts them to live lives worthy of the gospel among fellow believers, right? He calls them to have the same mind, considering each other's interests above their own. Then in verses 5 to 11, he gives them the ultimate example of a life worthy of the gospel, that is Jesus himself. And then flowing from that, from Jesus' example, he exhorts them to continue walking worthy of the gospel, as we saw last week in verses 12 to 18. So we have living a life worthy of the gospel among unbelievers, among Christians, as uh, a reflection of Christ, and then to continue in that. And then we get to our passage tonight, which can seem a little out of place. Um, he goes from this lofty talk about living worthy lives reflecting Jesus to then uh, talking about logistics and ministry plans and details. So what, what is this all about? Um, in order to discover the main emphasis of this passage, I'd like to have some, some more audience participation. Uh, we're going to read the passage first, and then I'm going to ask some questions that I hope will help us to get to what's going on, what Paul is getting at here. So turn to Philippians 2, beginning in verse 19. Here we read, Philippians 2, 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I therefore, I hope therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your minister and messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay, so um, to help determine what's going on in the passage, we're going to ask those six basic interrogative questions. 
who, what, where, when, and how. So who is being talked about in this passage? Who are the people mentioned in the passage? Timothy and Epaphroditus, and implicitly Paul as well. He talks about himself. Um, so that's who. What is he essentially talking about regarding these two guys? Now, I want you to think very basically here and look at verses 19, 25, and 28. There's something that is repeated in each one. Okay, what, what is he talking about regarding these guys? What does he want to do with them? Send them, right? He wants to send them back to Philippi, right? Hopefully he wants to go with himself. So he's talking about travel and ministry plans uh, with these guys. So where is this happening and where is it going to happen? This, this seems obvious, but where is he? Rome, going to Philippi, right? Uh, that may not seem like a big deal, but I think it will have some implications later. Uh, when is this sending happening? Or is, when is it going to happen? So you got to be a little louder because I think I'm getting older and losing, losing it. Soon. That's right. Right. So as soon as he can with Epaphroditus, it's verse 25, and once things are settled with Paul's trial, he's going to send Timothy and hopefully go himself. So next question, why? Here's the big question. Why is he sending these two guys? Again, we want to be basic. To cheer him up, right? Well, to, to be cheered by a report about how they're doing, right? He wants to encourage them uh, with this letter. He wants to hear what's going on with the church. He also wants to put their minds at ease, right? Because of who? Epaphroditus was sick, and they were anxious for him. Now, what we've learned from the previous context, remember that little short outline that I gave you? Thinking about that previous context, um, how does that maybe help us understand Another significant reason why he may be sending them. I think it's because he has another motive. He wants to present to the Philippian church flesh and blood examples of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. What he has been describing that is a reflection of Jesus. And that by those examples, they may be encouraged and motivated to live out those kind of lives. So, next question. How? How does Paul do this? By sending them and by setting their example, presenting their example before them, as we see in the passage. So, we can say the main emphasis or the big idea of the passage is this. Paul is sending and commending to the church ministers and models of Christ-like character. He is sending and commending to the church ministers and models of Christ-like character for the purpose that they too would reflect a Christ-life like. So, we're going to go through this passage that we might discover what God wants us to glean from these two examples. Now, before we look at uh, Timothy and Epaphrodite, Epaphrodite is such a long name. Can I call him Epi, Epa, Epaphroditus, Mahalahala, something like that. I can call him something like that. <laughs> as, I, as I said earlier, 
Uh, we learn something from Paul that is more implicit than explicit. But he says some significant things about himself. In verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy. And then in verse 24, he says, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So clearly, we see Paul's intention to send Timothy as well as his own hope uh, to be with them in person as well. But he clarifies that desire with those two statements. I hope in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. What we learn here is Paul's readiness to submit to God's will and to acknowledge God's overruling authority in his life no matter what happens to him. He entrusts himself to God's sovereign plans, whether he lives, which is, which is his hope, right? He says, I have this expectation. But then he goes to say, but I trust in the Lord that I'll be able to come, right? So he commends himself to God's sovereignty, whether he lives or whether he dies, which is clearly a potential. There are times when we m may want things to go a certain way. Uh, and they just don't, right? They don't necessarily turn out the way we hoped. And then maybe we can begin to question and doubt what God is doing. We can begin to wonder. And maybe even ask, is, is God really good? We may not say, but maybe we wonder, God, you, you must have it wrong here. I remember an old roommate of mine. <clears throat> Actually, we were in Bible college together, and we became roommates after Bible college. He wanted to be a missionary to Japan. And an opportunity uh, came up for him, uh, for, for him as a way to get to Japan. There was this uh, English as a second language ministry um, that he um, heard about. Up to that point, he was really discouraged about his hope for future ministry. But when he heard about this opportunity, he said, this must be what God wants me to do. Otherwise, why would he let this happen? Why would he let this opportunity come my way? And he was really hopeful that this was his chance to get overseas. Not long after that, he found out that the ministry was really only geared for people in their 20s, and he, he just turned 31. He was very disappointed because he figured it had to be the will of God when it wasn't that at all. What might have happened, friends? I, I, I think God could be doing all kinds of things in a situation like that. There may be all kinds of reasons for it not working out. Uh, but at the very least, we know that um, it was an opportunity for him to learn how to trust God when things didn't go the way that he planned. And, and a lesson to keep a light hold on our agenda and to trust, entrust my time into God's hands. We don't always like to have a light hold on our agenda, do we? We have dreams, we have desires, we have hopes, and we can think, this is what God really wants. But I think what we learn from Paul is that we need to keep a light hold on our agenda and to help others when 
their agendas aren't fulfilled. Sometimes we impose on God what we really want when he hasn't necessarily promised it, right? What, what, what are some of the things we hope for? It could be a, a job. It could be a, a house. It could be healing from a sickness. Something to happen with a relationship. Something to change in a relationship. Finances, ministry, what, whatever. It's, it's perfectly right and good to seek God in anything that you may hope for. And perhaps even with wise counsel to make plans for those things. But when they don't work out, can you trust God with the outcome? Whether it goes your way or not. Paul is an example and model for us in this way. And Jesus, of course, is Paul's ultimate example. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his arrest and crucifixion, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What is the cup? It's, it's the, the cup or the suffering that comes from taking on the wrath of God onto himself for the sin of all who would repent and believe in Jesus. He says, God, if, if you can, you can take it from me. But then he prays what? Not my will, but yours be done. He does it three times. This is not easy. And, and isn't it good to know that Jesus understands? It wasn't easy for the Son of God. Paul learned to pray like that. But it can be hard, right, to trust when our will is not done. What can help us here? Dennis Johnson, um, Bible commentator, says this. Paul is freed from the preoccupation with himself. Is he perfectly freed? I don't think so. But he's pretty free from preoccupation with himself. To live boldly with a priority on God's glory. Freedom from preoccupation with himself. To live boldly with a priority on God's glory. What, what does that mean? What, what, what does that even look like to live with a priority on God's glory and to be freed from occupation with self? And I really want you to think about this. In fact, I, I'll even take some thoughts and examples from you. What would it look like to do that, to be freed from preoccupation with self, to live for God's glory when life is hard, when people are annoying? That doesn't happen, right? When things don't go my way, when life is hard at home, when I've been hurt, I've been really disappointed, and I'm really angry, whatever it might be. How, friends? How? What, what, what is something that you can hold on to? Really? Can anybody share some thoughts? The Bible? Okay, that's right. What about the Bible? Okay, good. What else? To, to trust that God is good and faithful. How do we get to that place? That's no easy thing, right? We can say it. It sounds really good on paper. But getting there is hard. Right, so taking those thoughts captive, right? Because it's, it's, it, they, they, they come. Sometimes they come without warning, right? 
And what do you do with those thoughts? Cappy, our biblical counselor, she, she's got a really great little phrase for this. Sometimes we have to exchange the meditation of our heart or the thoughts of our minds with new meditation. Right. Yeah, I think, I, think that that's, I think that's really great, too, to just tell God, right? But I, I do have to acknowledge what Crystal has said is to go to the Bible because it's there that we are seeing about, hearing about, learning about, experiencing, tasting, and seeing Jesus as faithful and worthy to be trusted. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say it later. We don't have a perfect church, but we got a pretty great church, friends. We have great people in this church. We have these small groups. We have these growth groups, community fellowships, whatever it might be. People who will live this out with you and help you to see Jesus better. I, I, I really believe it's about looking to Jesus in his word, his example, and his power. It's, it's experiencing him as faithful, as good, as reliable through the word of God. You, you know that I use these examples from, from Narnia, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, there's the four kids that are in Narnia, and um, uh, Aslan the lion has revealed himself only to one of them, Lucy, the youngest one she knows him best and the other ones can't see him and he's like you follow me whether they come or not and the older sister is giving Lucy a hard time and Lucy it says she's got all kinds of bad thoughts in her mind about Susan her sister until she looked at the lion and kept her eyes on him then she forgot those thoughts. Sometimes, that's, not sometimes, that is what we need. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus through the word, in prayer, in the power of the spirit, and God has given us one another to grow in that way. He helps us. He has the power to help us live for his glory and let go of our own self-interest. Paul learned to submit his will to the will of God. We also learn from Paul that he exemplifies what he exhorted the church to do, and that is considering others' interests above his own. Right? He's ready to send Epaphroditus back to the church. Uh, he's in jail. Right? He, he could probably use as much company and help as he can get. I mean, that's why the Philippians sent Epaphroditus. Anyway, you look at verse 25. That's, that's what they did. They sent him to be a minister to his needs. But instead of keeping both Timothy and Epaphroditus with him, he sends Epaphroditus back in order to care for the church. What does this say to us? Paul is consciously and deliberately other-centered. And I see so many examples of this in our church. When people are sick, other people are, are, are asking about them. They're praying for them. They're visiting them. They're sending them meals. When, when people might 
not be showing up at church for two, three, or four weeks. People reach out to them. They're calling them and visiting them to see if everything's okay. Others are going through a difficult time relationally, emotionally, financially, whatever it might be. Over and over again, we see people in our church who are looking to care for and to minister to each other. At the end of church, you know, the pastors come up front, right, and we're waiting for people who may need prayer or whatever. And every once in a while, somebody comes up and says, hey, pastor, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? The guy I'm thinking about is in here right now, but I won't point him out. I, I, I'm so encouraged by the people of this church, right? We can really be that for one another. Now, now, nobody's going to do it perfectly. But we're following in the way of Jesus. Who did not, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself in order to serve others who were in need. Those are the kind of people I want in my life. Is that the kind of person you are? Are you available for others who may be in need? And we know you have other, sometimes primary obligations, you know, wife, kids, job, whatever. But can you seek God's grace to be intentionally and consciously other-centered? Because that's what happens, friends, when a life is transformed by the gospel. It's a part of growing mature and following in the way of Christ. That's Paul's example. Now we'll look at Timothy as a gospel minister and model of Christ. Paul says he is sending Timothy because he wants to be cheered by news of them. Right? Um, he says he has no one else like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for their welfare. No one? Really? That's what he says, no one at all. I have no one at all like him. Now we know from previous chapter, chapter 1, that there are faithful believers there in Rome. Paul speaks of them. So what do you think maybe Paul means here? Well, we also know that Paul had rivals there in Rome. People who were guys who were preaching the gospel out of envy to somehow afflict Paul and get on his nerves. I think perhaps it is these men that Paul is talking about. Again, it says they all seek their own interests. Well, we know it's not every single one of them, but I think it's perhaps these perhaps younger leaders. Guys who would have the physical capacity to make the trip. Remember earlier I said it's important that we're talking about Roman Philippi. We're talking about weeks of travel on foot, over sea. It's going to be grueling, right? So guys who had the physical capacity to do the trip, but who are actually unworthy regarding their spiritual integrity and genuine concern for the church. They're the opposite of what Paul has been commending to them as those who are worthy of the gospel. And so Timothy is the only one who has the physical capacity as well as the moral and spiritual integrity for the trip. Because it's not just... You know, I'm sending you to do something. He's sending him to care for their souls. 
Timothy loved the gospel. He loved Paul. He loves the church that, he, that Paul is writing to. He is willing to selflessly serve for the sake of others. So you got Timothy and those who are just looking out for their own interests. Who do you want to be like? When you come to church, how do you, how do you walk in? Is it just to get and to receive? Is it to be fed and encouraged and cared for to, to get really good theological teaching and, and more insights? That's all good. Yes, you should do that. But where does it go from there? Does your coming and receiving have its intended effect that we see in the book? Serving those right in front of you. That's, that's the intended effect. Doing it with humility, with other-centeredness, living a life worthy of the gospel. Those are the kind of people we want to be served by and, Lord willing, that we want to become like. Pastor Eric will say this oftentimes. Our faith in Christ is personal, but it's not private. Life in Christ of necessity will involve receiving from others and giving for others. Let's pray that we become those sorts of people and, and encourage one another in that. So Timothy stands out as someone Paul could rely on. And so he reminds the believers of what he calls, in verse 22, Timothy's proven worth. He's been with Paul uh, he was with Paul when the Philippian church was founded. He accompanied Paul and worked with the church in Thessalonica. He was sent by Paul to Corinth. He served Paul and the cause of Christ very well. But the way he did it was significant. Paul says he did it as a son with a father. I was a lousy son. I really was. Now, my mother wouldn't necessarily agree with that because she thinks I'm wonderful. But there were moments where she knew I was a bit of a bum growing up. But I wasn't concerned about my family's reputation. Uh, I wasn't concerned for my family's cares or causes. I, I mean, I had to do some things at the house because, you know, I'd get disciplined and kicked out. But I acted like an entitled, self-serving punk. You think I'm exaggerating? I am not. And I say that to my shame. In contrast, I have three wonderful sons. They look out for me in my life. They really do. They're concerned for our well-being. Hudson's always afraid I'm going to fall because I'm getting older now. <laughs> it's true. They chip in to help us with the, with the work in the house. They're not always glad to do it, but they're usually glad to do it. They actually enjoy being with us. <laughs> and I think they still do. And when God got a hold of their hearts... 
they wanted to share in spiritual things with us. They wanted to be with God's people. And they wanted to serve his interests with us and with this church family. And I, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm not patting myself or my wife on the back. We recognize this was the grace and mercy of God. And not everybody has that. But they weren't kids who did things grudgingly. Where we had to kind of coerce them to do it. They actually did things with a right attitude. And again, it wasn't always <laughs> a right attitude. But generally speaking, they were. Because we were, we were a family that belonged together and we were part of each other. We, we had that father-son, mother-son relationship. That was Timothy's proven worth with Paul as a son with a father. That's the kind of heart inclination God wants for every one of us. It was the kind of heart that Jesus, the Son of God, had for God the Father, right? John 15. If you keep my commandments, he says to the disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This is my commandments. Here's, here's what he's calling them to obey. That you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus desires his joy to be in every believer. And that that joy would be full. And the fullness comes as we live in the love of God, which is associated with obeying the commandments of God. This is, listen, this is not some sort of divine contract, right? If, if, um, if I do everything God says, if I'm really careful to keep the commands of God, that he's going to give me what, what I want. That's not what this is about. It's about love and obedience. Obedience and love, they work together. It's not, I do one to get the other or avoid one to not get the other. It's about genuine love, having a, a sacrificial concern for someone else. And what is God's concern? What is his interest? That we love him and we're concerned for his glory. And that we love others and are concerned for their interests and their ultimate good. That's what the Son of God is like. Do you have any little trouble with this sometimes? Because <laughs> I do. Paul has given them this ultimate example of a worthy life of what the gospel looks like. It's Jesus, right? I mean, this is a high standard, and it can seem impossibly high. And we might look to the Word of God. We might really try to believe. We try to trust in the Spirit to help us grow like Jesus. But you know what? God is so good. He gives us flesh and blood examples and models of Christ-like character. In other words, we're, Jesus is the example, but Jesus isn't here with us in the flesh. But in his kindness, he gives us these living models, these living examples of Christ-like service and character to encourage us and move us toward that worthy goal. It's like Paul is saying, look, 
what I've just laid out for you about living a life worthy and following the way of Jesus, this is not some just abstract idea. Here is my spiritual son, Timothy. He's the real deal. He is the living reality of what right theology should result in in the life of a Christian. He's the evidence that every one of us in the power of God can take these steps and make progress toward a life that reflects the life of Jesus. But we don't want to approach this grudgingly, right? Or even with lip service, right? You know what I mean by that, right? We say the right things, but your heart is far from him. No, Timothy had a heart of a son for a father. He's a living example of the son of God's heart for God the Father. And friends, the son is powerful to help you do that. Now listen, is this just for gospel ministers? I mean, because, you know, Timothy was... Paul's protege, his apprentice, um, looking to, toward gospel ministry. Is it just for gospel ministers? Of course not. Is this going to be a work in progress? Are you going to have this all figured out by next week when we meet again? No. Timothy, in his selfless service to Paul in the gospel, is a living model and a minister of what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. That's Timothy. Now we're going to look at Epaphroditus. How many do I'm on time here? Okay, we're good. Epaphroditus, beginning in verse 25. Uh, he is a second, a second example of a Christ-life like that Paul wants to commend to the church. Paul is not able to send Timothy, Timothy to the church at this point. He needs Timothy to stick around and help him as the court, his court case progresses and he's ready to go before Caesar. So instead of Timothy, he sends Epaphroditus back to them. What do we know about this guy? Well, uh, we know that the Philippian church sent him as an ambassador of encouragement uh, to, uh, to Paul. But he's also carrying a gift, an offering uh, to Paul from the church in order to meet his physical needs. We see that in verse, uh, chapter 4. Um, Epaphroditus is likely traveling from Philippi to Rome with maybe one or two other people as a protection as he's carrying this monetary gift. Paul says that Epaphroditus completes what was lacking in their service to him. Verse 30. This, this simply means that the church didn't yet have the opportunity to bring that support and encouragement to Paul in person until Epaphroditus was able to do it. That's all that means, okay? Okay. But then Epaphroditus gets sick, either on the way to Rome or once he arrives, or after he arrives. And it's likely that one of those other traveling companions, if he had it, were sent back to the church to tell them what happened with Epaphroditus. If it wasn't a traveling companion, it was someone else who was going back to Rome, and they're like, can you bring this message? Now, it's clear that um, Timothy's illness is not, a, or Epaphroditus' illness is not a summer cold, right? It says twice that his illness was so severe that it was nearly fatal. He was near to death. But he recovers. And instead of remaining with Paul, 
Paul is concerned to send him back to the church in order to relieve their anxiety over their illness. And, and Epaphroditus, he's longing to be back with them. He is full of compassion and a desire to help them. Now, uh, so he, he's, he's going to be sent back, right? He's better. He's getting sent back. Now, you would think that the church in Philippi would have just been glad to see him on his return. He's healthy. He's okay. He's done what we've asked him to do. They're going to welcome him with open arms. But for some reason, Paul makes a really big deal of honoring Epaphroditus and exhorting the church to honor him. And why is that so? Well, a, a number of authors I read um, believe that Paul may be concerned that the, that the church will be disappointed that Epaphroditus comes back instead of Timothy. Remember, Paul wanted to send Timothy, and with the troubles that were going on in the church, they probably needed someone with that leadership to come back. And Timothy was a leader. He, again, he was Paul's protege. Epaphroditus is probably just a layman sent out with an ordinary task. So perhaps they're looking for Timothy to come in and help them with the circumstances, but it's just Epaphroditus. And they might be disappointed that he came back without Timothy. Well, Paul wants to present Epaphroditus to them as someone whose character and service is to be honored. Because again, Epaphroditus' character and life reflect Jesus, a life worthy of the gospel. He's fulfilled the mission that they sent him on. And his ordinary service is actually something extraordinary in Paul's eyes. And it should be commended. Paul gives a number of descriptions about Epaphroditus. First of all, he calls him brother. Not in the biological sense, but in the ultimate sense, as a brother in the family of God through faith in Jesus. We often like to, uh, well, I guess I should say, I often uh, use that term for my male friends here at church. Hey, brother, how's it going? Yo, bro, what's happening? Right? I do it often. Maybe you do it too. Sometimes our overuse uh, can diminish the, the significance of that family connection. How we consider each other in the church really has gospel implications. We really are truly brothers and sisters in Christ for all time. I remember Kyle would say years ago, you might as well start hugging on each other because you're going to be doing it forever. And maybe, maybe we can use some help from the Spirit to actually regard others in that way, to think about them not just casually as, hey, bro, but to really think about them, uh, I'm going to be with that person forever. How do I love and care for them now? To call them a brother, call them a fellow worker and fellow soldier. Uh, Epaphroditus doesn't seem to have any official office in the church, but he does participate in the work of the gospel. He's a fellow worker. You don't have to have a particular title or even a very visible role in the life of the church in order for 
God to honor what you do as a worker for the gospel. Any service, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, is precious to the Son of God. Now, as we think of Epaphroditus, we might think, okay, so he took a trip, carried some cash, he prayed for Paul, they had a meal together, and then he came back. What's the big deal? Well, he just happened to be carrying a letter <laughs> written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that would exalt Jesus, that would impact and equip the church for centuries past and until Christ comes again. His contribution will be remembered for eternity. What's the big deal? He just took a trip. It was a big deal. What might seem like an ordinary task has eternal consequences. There is no little service done for God when done with the heart and character of the Son of God. So friends, if you're here and you're really not serving the people of God in the church, you might think, ah, what can I do? Ah, I don't have a whole lot of gifting. Ah, I don't even have maybe much time for it. Every little thing that you do in the name of Jesus, for the glory of God, in service to God's people, will have significant and even eternal consequences. Don't rob yourself of that, that gift from God. Paul calls him a fellow soldier. Of course, in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, Paul says that we are involved in a spiritual battle, right? Whereby we wrestle not against flesh uh, or, and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness. Paul faced opposition for the sake of the gospel when he was in Philippi. Chapter 1 tells us that the church also was experiencing opposition for their faith. And that is fueled, we see from Ephesians 6, by the powers of darkness. Epaphroditus would have experienced that same opposition. And so like Paul, he and the rest of the church are in a spiritual battle as they seek to live and proclaim the gospel. Friends, the Bible tells us that everyone, everyone who desires to live a godly life will face persecution. They will be, you will be, engaged in spiritual battle. And Jesus says we should rejoice and be glad when that happens. That's a bit hard to swallow, right? Because we don't like it. But it's not about liking it. It's about realizing that God's favor is on us when we suffer for righteousness' sake. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Um, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for so... They treated the prophets who were before you. I've shared this story before um, in my growth group. Um, we, we were talking about that verse, and I said, why, why, why does Jesus bring up, you know, the, the prophets? And, and, you know, that that's how he dealt with the prophets, that they were persecuted. And Mike Festus said, well, God must have liked them enough to talk to them, Right? In other words, 
in being persecuted, they weren't messing up. They were actually doing right. They were doing well. The persecution was a result of actually living for God and being willing to take the consequences, even if it was hard. When we were uh, on one of our trips to the Middle East, Doug remembers, um, we were in a big park at a big um, outdoor event, and we're sharing the gospel with all kinds of people, and then as we're leaving the park, we're almost out, and these policemen stop us. And they said, turn around, you're coming with us. Uh, that wasn't a lot of fun. And it was a little scary <laughs> at times. Four hours being questioned. And when we left, the missionary said, well, you must have been doing something right. Because we wouldn't have been there if we weren't actually proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes persecution comes. We don't have to go looking for it. We just have to follow the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, whose lives were worthy of the gospel. Paul goes on to call um, uh, Epaphroditus the Philippians' messenger and minister to his need. The word messenger in the Greek is the word for apostle, actually, or one who is sent. Now, this is not the uh, office that the uh, uh, the original 12 apostles had, Jesus conferred on them special authority in proclaiming the gospel and establishing the church. But Epaphroditus is also a sent one, commissioned by the church to minister to the needs of the apostle Paul. When we send missionaries, they are sent ones, like Epaphroditus was. And the world needs ones that are sent like that. Last thing I want to mention about Epaphroditus is his willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. He got deathly ill bringing gospel care to Paul. It says he was at the point of death, which is reminiscent, actually, of the words Paul used earlier for Jesus that said he was obedient to the point of death. Epaphroditus reflects the sacrificial nature of Jesus. He doesn't die. He's not able to die for the sins of those who would believe in him. Only Jesus' death can do that. But he does put himself in a risky situation. And he sacrifices his comforts for the cause of Christ. Paul suffered because he was actually preaching the gospel. Epaphroditus just got sick because he was taking a trip bringing a gift to one of God's ministers. So is that, is that really suffering for the gospel? You might remember the story of uh, Borden of Yale, William Borden. Uh, he was a missionary. He was on his way to a Muslim area of China. He wanted to learn Arabic so that he could work with people uh, through um, uh, 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 an understanding of the Quran. So he goes to uh, Egypt to learn Arabic. While he's there, he gets sick with spinal meningitis and he dies. That was a waste. It was no waste. He suffered in the service of the gospel. 
even though he wasn't really preaching the gospel at that point, he suffered as he endured living in the path of Jesus. And so it's never meaningless or worthless to put ourselves, listen, listen, it's never meaningless or worthless to put yourself at risk in the service of the gospel. Never. Sometimes, I mean, man, I was at the doctor last week. I shared this with the other pastors. And something spiritual came up and I had a perfect opportunity to talk to him about Jesus and I chickened out. You know why? Because I was afraid of what he would think of me. What are you, a jerk? You don't believe that. You don't, you don't believe that stuff, do you? It's not that big of a risk. <laughs> but it feels kind of risky sometimes, right? So what, what, what does this mean? How does this shape how we interact with unbelievers? When, when we have to stand for what is right and true in a culture of virtually complete tolerance. What does it mean for bringing the gospel to hard places? I, I'm so thankful for our, our missions program. That's really what we seek to do is to, is to work with partners who are in hard places among hard to reach people. We, sometimes you think there's not a whole lot of return. We don't necessarily see a whole lot of fruit, but it's the way of Jesus who suffered for the gospel. And he wants that gospel to go to those hard places. Because what does he say? It will go to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And the ones that are hard to reach or that are less reached are hard to reach. That's why we still need to send them. So what does it mean for bringing the gospel to hard places or even serving other believers like our friends in Belarus, like the church in Ukraine? What does it mean to serve other believers who are in difficult circumstances? What's going to empower us to live lives worthy and even to take risks for the gospel? Friends, we've already said it. It's looking to Jesus. It's the truth of who Jesus is. It's the truth of what he's done to come and serve us. And he is not only our model, he is the power that we need to live lives of unity and service for the sake of the gospel. So what do we want to take from these models of Christ-like character? Look for people like that. Who are the people in your life, in this church, that can be that for you? Do you have people like that in your life? There is a wealth of opportunity in this church. I've said it before, we're not perfect. And those who really do want to reflect the gospel and who want to be models and examples of a life worthy of the gospel, they know they're not perfect. And we shouldn't expect them to be. People are going to disappoint you. But we are surrounded with people who love Jesus and who want to live for Jesus and who want to model the character and lifestyle of Jesus in this church. They are, there's plenty in this room right now. And you'll never get to know them if you don't spend time with them.
these other models of the gospel are spurred on by other brothers and sisters who are models to them. So who is that for you? Who can be, maybe who has been a model for the gospel to you? I would encourage you to thank them. And keep looking out for those who will spur you on in living a life worthy of the gospel. And then, and then, who can you be that for? Who can you be that model to? Someone, I think it was Alistair Begg, said, the best friend you can have is the one who looks most like Jesus. Look for those kind of people. And then, friends, the best friend you can be is the one who also models Jesus. Amen? Our Father, help us to learn from these two brothers in the faith, and Paul. Help us to look for others who really model that for us in this church. And then, Lord Jesus, help us to learn from them. Help us to humble ourselves that we would learn from them. And then help us to be those kind of people for others as well. Give us your grace as we consider how you have sent, through Paul, sent and commended these men to live lives worthy of the gospel, to be an example. Help us to learn from them. Help us to live like them. We pray in Jesus' name.